0: The information contained on the Real Health Podcast and the resources mentioned are for educational purposes only. They are not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information contained on this podcast is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Information provided by hosts and guests on the Real Health Podcast or the use of any products or services mentioned does not create a practitioner-patient relationship between you and any persons affiliated with this podcast. This is the Real Health Podcast brought to you by Reardon Clinic. Our mission is to bring you the latest information and top experts in functional and integrative medicine to help you make informed decisions on your path to real health.
1: Well, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Ron Hunting-Hockey with another episode of the Real Health Podcast. And it's my real, our real pri- privilege today to have Dr. Amy Rothenberg, who is the author of You Finish Treatment, Now What? A Field Guide for Cancer Survivors. So Dr. Amy, I, I, I'm very pleased to have you on our program. And I think our patients are always... Asking me, what do I do now? You know, actually, it's pretty neat when you can get to the point of view where you start to think of yourself as a cancer survivor because many people are still in the trenches fighting it. But I'm just curious if you just tell us a little bit about your story and uh, how you got to writing this book.
2: Beth, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I am a licensed naturopathic doctor, and I've I've been in practice for the last 36 years, and I was living what I could only really define as a a pristine, healthy lifestyle with regard to things like my diet, exercise, time for rest and relaxation, low stress. Uh, I have a beautiful life here in rural Western Massachusetts with a supportive partner, healthy children, Uh, and I was diagnosed in 2014 with breast cancer, and I did everything conventional medicine asked me to do and at the same time I used all the naturopathic approaches to help enhance efficacy of conventional care, prevent side effects, address side effects that arose and then when I was done because I turned out after testing negative several times for the BRCA mutation to have the BRCA mutation, I went to have my ovaries removed prophylactically and lo and behold there was cancer on both ovaries. So that was my 2014 kind of uh, bookends. Um, I found a lump in my breast January 1st, 2014. My last chemo for the ovarian cancer was January 2nd, 2015. So that was a bit of a ride, you can imagine. And I really had um, the opportunity to really work this from both sides of the Johnny, so to speak. Yeah, I had incredible care at Mass General, and I had a dream team of naturopathic integrative oncologists at my side, uh, including my husband, who's sort of a one-man research phenom. Uh, And we got through it. And afterward, it became very apparent to me that the conventional medical world, besides doing active surveillance through laboratory work and scanning, really had nothing to offer me. Um, And I started writing on Huffington Post and then on Medium about what next, what next, what now. And it was a 10-part series that I did. And I got so much feedback from that series this is a book, you have to turn this into a book. And I personally needed some space from it. So I put it down for about five years and I picked up the thread a few years back. And it's the book, it's a a really a, a compendium, I think, for people who have finished treatment, who want some guidance and support. A lot of the things that you offer in your clinic, of course, and I know you guys are sort of all on top of this, but for the vast majority of cancer survivors, and there are you know, thousands and thousands of them and more all the time because conventional cancer care and integrative oncology is creating a situation where we have more and more survivors. There's really a demand for this kind of information. And in writing the book, there's a lot of me in the book. I share my story openly. Um, You know, I, I was a model patient, but I also had my bad days and I share some of that and what it's like to, you know, get a bad diagnosis and how to recover and be resilient um at my last of 16 rounds of chemo (laughs) I said to my husband okay honey in six months we're going to do our first triathlon I had been very athletic growing up I always stayed in shape I've never done triathlon and my husband looked at me and he said I'll be part of the photography team (laughs) (laughs) so truth be told you know six months later I did my first triathlon and I've done one a year since then and you know, something we were talking about briefly before we started recording was how, for a lot of people, cancer is a wake-up call. And what else can you do? And especially somebody like me, who's already living a very healthy lifestyle, uh, there was still more I could do. Further tidy up my diet, add some specific anti-cancer supplements, work on my microbiome, get rid of some of the activities and people that were a drain on my energy. Um, So... The book really grew out of the what I perceived as a, a need, a real need, and I hope that it helps people.
1: Well, I elaborate. like the idea of being a cancer survivor uh, because we see so many cancer patients that really they should be inculcating that attitude from the very beginning. So it's and and you might even say, given the the environment that we live in, the stress, the chemicals, the food that's bad. All the various things that set people up for cancer, that attitude of being a uh, a cancer survival survivor even before you get diagnosed. Doctor uh-huh. Reardon himself used to say, you know, we all carry cancer cells within us, okay. and so uh, the idea is is that if we take good care of ourselves, we can prevent the expression of that into a full blown cancer. So this my uh-huh. and so. It comes down to mindset. So maybe if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what happened to your mindset before and then after, and how has that translated into your ongoing lifestyle?
2: Yeah, I think mindset's very important. I I agree with you 100% that living a healthy lifestyle in all these various areas not only helps prevent cancer, but it also helps prevent diabetes, Heart disease, autoimmune disease, mental illness, chronic insomnia. There's there's so many things like that. And I was at my I had a book launch party a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said, I think you need to do a series. You know, you were diagnosed with diabetes, now what? You were diagnosed with heart disease, now what? And honestly, about 75%, or maybe a little less than that, of the information that we share with patients kind of goes across the major uh chronic health. Illnesses, And we know that close to 85% of these illnesses are lifestyle preventable. So I'm also very careful not to blame patients. I'm more interested in focusing on the concept of self-agency and the power and the capacity that we do have for making better choices. And uh, I always emphasize your body reflects the habitual, not the occasional. I don't want people to become rigid uh, in the way that they live because that's no fun for them and the people around them. In terms of my own mindset, I would say that I really have stayed true to the mindset I went in with, which is probably part of the reason why I handled conventional care as well as I did. And I further refined some of the, the pieces as as related. So where I um, related to my diet, I further tidied up my diet. I've bumped up my good exercise habit. I extenuated the time that I spend doing hobbies. In in other words, I had the great fortune of being able to work less. A lot of the things that we ask people to do in terms of a healthy lifestyle do require time um, and do require energy and forethought. And people who are working full-time jobs and take, and many of those are 60 or 70 hours a week, and taking care of family or being caregivers for other people in their family, it's harder So I've gotten pretty good at streamlining things for people and offering people a menu of options. Nobody can do everything. Nobody should try to do everything. Nobody can take every possible supplement that has been shown to be anti-cancer. It's cost prohibitive. It's not great for your digestive system. It's not fun. Um, So it's that, that fine line between empowering patients, not blaming people, not offering false hope, but also citing the evidence. I mean, this is not things that we're making up. This is evidence-based integrative medicine where there's a lot of evidence about how lifestyle impacts the uh, survivorship years.
1: Did you, and I know this is a question that many of our listeners might have, did you, when you were diagnosed and you realized, hey, I'm, I'm going into... The heart of the beast here and and i'm going to be working with conventional oncologists there's a lot of our patients that fear oncology they fear losing control of their choices and mm-hmm. i was just going to ask you how you were able to overcome that mindset of uh us against them and and starting to yeah. see more of a partnership uh yeah. how do you inculcate that into that relationship
2: yeah, I have a whole chapter in my book early on in the book, which is called basically How to Talk So Your Oncologist Listens and Listens So Your Oncologist Talks. Uh, with apologies to Farber and Maslis, who wrote a wonderful book years ago called How to Talk So Your Kids Listen and Listen So Your Kids Talk, hmm. uh, one of my parenting Bibles. But um, I knew that these, I needed to create a dream team. And these, I went to the smartest, best people I could access in my region. Uh, And I had perfect faith in them. I'm a person of strong faith anyway. I I put my faith in the people who I had been referring patients to for years. So I already had relationships with those people. And we often will borrow from the world of scuba diving. There's an expression in scuba diving, which is basically we're going to plan the dive and we're going to dive the plan. And I really love that expression because what happens when you're diagnosed with cancer, even if you're a physician like myself, is that everybody is an expert, and you have people coming at you you know, on the street, in your uh, synagogue or church, uh, by email, by text, with ideas of things you should do and things you should try. And that's very overwhelming for a lot of cancer patients. So I got very good at, and then I got very good at instructing my patients to put up one hand. That I'm, I'm not actually taking any more information right now. Thank you for your concern. I appreciate it. But I have my plan set and I feel very comfortable with it. So not offending everybody and understanding people are coming from a place of really wanting to help and be supportive, but it's too much. You know, it's too much coming at you from different places. So for me, I didn't feel that antagonism because I would already been through the cancer travails with so many patients over the course of my career, as well as family members and friends. And I knew what I wanted and I knew what I didn't want. And I was able to advocate for myself. And i that's obviously a reflection of both my personality and temperament, and also my education and training and experience in the clinic. And I will coach patients of mine who are about to embark on this about these very topics. You know, meet your doctor fully dressed, you know, things, things like that. Bring in your list of questions and say ahead of time, I have a number of questions I want to be sure we save time for. Uh, there there are ways of just taking back a little bit of the um, capacity for self-agency, instead of feeling like a victim in a system that is enormous and big, and you're just sort of a little thing in it. So these are, I mean, it's a beautiful question. I appreciate the question. And I, I love working with patients on this because it really makes or breaks the difference of how you're gonna go through for a lot of people, six months or a year, if not more of treatment.
0: There's a lot more to this conversation, and it's coming up right after a quick break. Today's podcast is brought to you by Live On Labs, makers of liposomal vitamins and supplements. Live On uses a liposomal encapsulation technology to protect nutrients from destruction in the digestive system. This allows for more efficient delivery of essential vitamins and nutrients. Choose from various supplements that support health and well being, such as lipospheric vitamin C magnesium, glutathione, and more. To learn more, visit Labs. That's L-I-V-O-N dot
1: I think many people are afraid of side effects from the, the treatments and that definitely they're a reality. One of the things I encourage people with is that the, the supplements, the lifestyle changes, the exercise, all the various things that need to be done uh, while you're in the midst of treatment be, should be done and it will help you reduce side effects from that treatment. I, did, I didn't know, it, was that your experience?
2: Absolutely. And I wrote extensively on the Huffington Post, you can type in my name and 2014 cancer. I did a whole series and here's what you do during chemo. Here's what you do during radiation. Here's what you can do during immunotherapy. And I obviously natural medicine is by definition individualized to the patient, but there are certain elements that are universal. And I followed them. Uh, I mean, probably the best example for me is we know that people who are well perfused, meaning their blood is moving around well, do better with radiation. Cancer cells are more radiosensitive. You're better at protecting underlying organs. So I had my radiation treatments in the good weather. That's key, uh, at least for me here in the Northeast. And I, my husband and I would walk two or three miles in a park right adjacent to the hospital where I was receiving my radiation treatments before I got on the table for my zaps, so to speak, and I was often sweating freely. I was quite warm Um, and people would say, oh my God, you look like you're you're, you're getting hot flashes. Like, no, I just went for a great walk. Uh, And I got on the table knowing that that was the best possible way for me to receive my radiation treatments. So yes, doing things that are proactive, that enhance efficacy of conventional care and simultaneously prevent side effects. I mean, it makes so much sense. And my oncologists, to their credit, continually ask me, you know, what else are we doing? On, you know, what else are you doing from your end? What else are you doing to keep your blood counts up? How did you get your platelets up? They were in the toilet. Um, and I would share freely, you know, and, and cite the evidence and bring in studies and uh, educate along the way uh, while still allowing myself to be the patient, letting people be very nice to me taking the meals in from my neighbors and things like that. I really knew that I also was the patient and I needed to focus on my own healing, not just educating other people during the process.
1: It really sounds like you did exactly what Dr. Reardon di- or did when he was alive. He, he said, you know, our patients are co-learners. And if, if a patient understands that idea, that means that they're co-learning and their doctors are co-learning at the same time. And there's an empowerment both ways. You know, a lot of doctors, they are walking around like, gee, do I have to fight the patient on this or that? Or the patient feels that same way. But if you have the attitude of co-learning and and informing uh, both ways, what is needed, what you are concerned about, then you develop that partnership that is empowering and healing. Yeah. So. And I think
2: it you know, it also impacts both quality of life and health outcomes. For sure. And so that's in, in writing my book, my goal really was, how can I help people improve quality of life and how can we impact health outcomes? Yeah. You know, it's, it's something that, I mean, we're all going to die That's something, you know, we, we know we're all going to die at some point, but a lot of my cancer patients who were older diagnosis or who've been in my practice for 35, 36 years, you know, they have died because they're in 85 or 90 of something else. And uh, of course, I hate losing any patients to anything, but I'm really interested in quality of life and health outcomes.
1: So one one other area that I would like for you to maybe address, and, because uh, even in uh, Dr. Winter's metabolic approach to cancer training that I went through, uh, she says that, you know, yes, we want to do all the lifestyle things, the dietary things, the supplemental things, the you know, inflammation, regulation, immunity, enhancement. But at the bottom line uh, with cancer patients, very often stress is a factor at the beginning, in the middle, and I'm going to say even at the end. You know, p- patients that finish uh, their treatment, there's this fear of, like, is it going to recur? How, will I know? What am I yeah. going to do? So this yeah. fear and stress, I think, is uh, is a theme that we see running through the whole cancer journey, how did you personally handle that? And what, what kind of advice can you give our patients in that in that regard?
2: Yeah, I think it's important to underscore the idea that a lot of people come into a cancer diagnosis very anxious and stressed out. We were living in a particularly stressful time. I've never in all my years of practice seen anything like it. Rates of depression, anxiety, right. insomnia are sort of skyrocketing. Uh, We know a lot now and every month seems like we know more about Mm psychoneuroimmunology and how our mind affects our nervous system and our nervous system affects our immune system. And we're 100% relying on our immune system to keep cancer cells that we all do have floating around at bay. Um, And we know that the microbiome plays an enormous role in our psychoemotional health as well. So for me, I came in with a pretty strong head game. But a lot of cancer survivors um, have what is called somatosensory amplification, you know, so they feel a little something uh, and it's like, oh, yeah. I wonder if that's cancer. Oh, I, I wonder, I, I have this thing in my in my, in my tummy, I, I wonder if I have stomach cancer. It's, it, it's so not on the money, it's just way off, but that's a common theme for many cancer survivors. And I, I have a funny story about that myself. I, one evening, my husband and I were doing something in the kitchen. I walked into the kitchen cabinet, got a big egg on my forehead, uh, black and blue, you know, it just it was just terrible. And the next, I put ice on it. I took my Arnica. I did all the natural things to help. And the next day I woke up and I had a splitting headache. And then my first thought was like, oh, my God, I hope I don't have brain cancer. And my <laughs> husband and I both cracked up. It was like, uh, you just hit your head pretty hard. You know, it's probably not brain cancer. So I think that, you know, one of the chapters in my book is basically on the head game um with the understanding that a lot of people have adverse events from childhood people are overworking people are um dealing with caregiving other members of their family the stress as we said you know over uh flowing for many people so what do we need to do we need to look at our lives are there any places we can reduce that stress you know sort of like fixing the leaky bucket stop being in a relationship with that person that is very stressful for you, or maybe shifting your work responsibilities, or if you're able hiring and help in the home. This, this takes different forms for different people, but it's a conversation that I am always having with all my patients, not just my cancer or cancer survivor patients. And then what are you doing, or what are we doing to help with stress reduction and stress management? So the first, the number one treatment for stress, you know, for everybody is exercise. It raises our threshold for feeling stress. It helps us dissipate the stress we have. It helps us be better perfused, which helps to circulate all those good nutrients that we're hopefully eating, et cetera. So, you know, what else is part of the good head game? Some kind of gratitude practice has been proven to be such a central part for many people, shifting your posture and developing some kind of sense of gratitude. Uh, whether that's journaling or whether that's speaking gratitudes around the dinner table. There's many ways to do that. Um, meditation. We know any kind of meditation at all, whether it's the form of prayer, breathing, exercise, mindfulness, meditation, it, there's so many options now. Um, these are all things that help. And so for a lot of my patients to say, I don't have time to meditate. I'm not time to meditate. And that's exactly the person that needs to meditate. Um, and we, we just show our baby steps and we know that, once a habit is formed, habits tend to, uh, to, to stay. So how do you start a new habit? Evidence shows that starting a new habit by linking it to an old habit is often the best way to go. So if I have somebody who really needs to take five deep breaths this day, you know, I'm not, it's I'm not asking for the moon, I'll say, why don't you do it right after you brush your teeth? i pretty sure they're going to brush their teeth every day. Mm-hmm. Just sit there in the bathroom and just take five breaths after you brush your teeth. Something as simple as that we know impacts the way that we think and the way that we experience stress. So it's a great question, and I, I feel like this is the big frontier. This is the big frontier: how to get people's mind and spirit working in sync with the physical changes that seem easier to make. It's easy to take a fistful of supplements and maybe cut out gluten if you need to do that, than it is to take by the horns the stresses in your life and get them into a more manageable, manageable place.
1: So Dr. Amy, we could go on and on. I just had this really interesting thought though. You know, really everyone, even everyone that's listening, even if you haven't had cancer, you should really read Dr. Amy's book. You finished treatment. Now what? What about you don't have cancer Read this book and you'll learn all the things that you should be doing, not only, you know, after cancer, but during cancer, but I would say before cancer. And then that can help you avoid the cancer in the first place, hopefully. But like you say, in your case, you were doing all that stuff, but uh, nature had another idea. And so, but you, but you survived it well, and that's the key. So thank Uh, you very much. The
2: number one treatment for cancer is really prevention. Yeah. I, I I just have been saying that for 30 plus years and, you know, we do have so much capacity to to impact our health regardless of what we're struggling with. And the fact that a lot of people feel disempowered in the medical setting is also common in people who feel disempowered in other aspects of their lives. So this is one place where I feel as a naturopathic doctor, I can help people take back some of that self-agency and really see wonderful wonderful results
1: i agree again thank you so much for your sharing your experience today and in and in the book and i encourage all of our listeners to pick it up and learn new ways that you can take better care of yourself and and be a forever cancer survivor so dr amy thank you again thank you so much thank you
2: thank you
0: for listening to the real health podcast If you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all of the episodes and show notes over at realhealthpodcast.org. Also, be sure to visit reardonclinic.org, where you will find hundreds of videos and articles to help you create your own version of real health.